0: Now, we're in a series called Radical Grace. And let me just say one thing about grace. Grace is unique to biblical Christianity. Grace is unique to the gospel. Other religions, uh, they have some kind of a works theology. In other words, in some way, you earn your way to God. And what the New Testament teaches explicitly is that you cannot do that. And that we are completely reliant on this thing called grace. And so that's why we've been talking about it for the last several weeks. Next week, we're going to finish this series on radical grace. Uh, and we've been looking at parables, the parables of Jesus, some of them, that teach specifically about grace, because grace was a huge paradigm shift for the religious culture of the day, the, the Jewish leadership had built up on sort of a works, a working theology. You work your way in, you earn your way in. And Jesus, during his short three-year ministry, did everything he could to try and flip that so that people could understand grace. And one of the ways he did it was through storytelling because he, he knew people would remember stories. And so these parables are short stories, usually with one point, sometimes more, but usually one major point. And in almost all of them, there is a surprise, and that was intentional. Jesus wanted people to go down a track, and all of a sudden it has a twist ending. And in fact, it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be too short to say something like, he meant it to be scandalous, almost like people go, ah, when they heard the ending, because it was so different than what they anticipated. And we get sort of anesthetized to it, because we've heard these parables, and we're sort of used, if you've been to church for a while, sort of the grace theme, But I'm just telling you, back in the day when Jesus said these, people would have gone, when they heard the ending, because it was so not expected. And in fact, it was scandalous. It was actually scandalous. So I'm going to try to get you to feel a little bit of the scandal in the story we're looking at. And we're looking in Luke 18, verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. It is a parable, a short parable, but it's a parable that teaches a very, very powerful truth. And uh, just get you warmed up. Yes, this one's going to be up on the screen, and it is in your program. So, but turn your Bibles. Just get warmed up, because soon there will be a Bible sword drill, and you'll need to be ready. <laughs> All right, so Luke 18.9 says these words. Uh, why don't we read it together? <laughs> to some who are, okay, we're going to read this together. All right, are you ready? Okay, so not Bible sword now. Now it's Bible reading together. Here we go. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Uh, Isn't it funny how it used to be that there were people like that, that were confident and self-righteous? I'm so glad we don't live in a culture like that anymore. We never see that taking place. But Jesus is going to address an issue, and the heads up from Luke is this is going to have something to do with people that are really confident and maybe a little self-righteous, this is going to be a story that's probably going to hit them right between the eyes. Here's the other thing that's important, because there's going to be two characters that we'll introduce you to in just a second in this, and it would be a mistake to think that Jesus was talking about two uh, kinds of different people. There's going to be a Pharisee and a tax collector, of which you can relate to neither one, I understand that, But that wasn't Jesus' point here. He wasn't singling out a group called the Pharisees and a group named the tax collectors and giving them a truth that applied to both. He was saying this. The attitude of the Pharisee and the attitude of the tax collector can be an attitude that anybody has. And sometimes, and maybe uh, almost for all of us, We've had both attitudes at times. So he's teaching about these attitudes. The idea is this is relevant to you because you drift into one or both of these attitudes, and he's going to call you out on it. He's going to say, we need to talk about these attitudes because one's not real good, and the other one's okay, but one's not real good. So that's, it's important that we understand that and that even though he's using maybe sort of archaic people in this that we can't relate to, Catch the attitude, because we can all relate to the attitude that is mentioned here. <clears throat> and in fact, just to point this out, okay, first Bible sword drill, Luke 12.1. Luke 12, 1. Back, pretty easy, just back a few ver- uh, chapters. Okay, Luke 12.1. Are you there? You're so studly. Okay, I'm going to read it, though, because you don't have a microphone. All right. So just so that we're clear that this is about an attitude... Listen to what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. This is not the people that we just said here, those that are super self-confident. It's not the Pharisees. It's not the Sadducees. It's not the, any of those seas. Here's what he says. He says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so the point he's making here is he goes, anybody can fall into this. Even those of you, Peter and John and James, those of you that are the closest to me, those of you that are going to lead the church in the future, you're going to write Bible books, even you need to watch out for this. This is an attitude that anybody can have. So back to Luke 18, continuing on in our story, Jesus sets it up this way. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector." Back in that day, the temple was in what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, and the temple, really, in Jewish culture, the temple really, you could put an equal sign to God's presence. They believed that God's presence uniquely dwelt in the temple, specifically in a little room called the Holy of Holies, specifically in a place called the mercy seat that was above the Ark of the Covenant. And they believed God's presence in a unique way was there. And the closer you were to the mercy seat, the closer to God's presence. And so this idea that these two guys are coming up to the temple, it's not exactly like going to church where we would say, well, God's presence is everywhere. They would have thought we're going up to meet with God. That's what's happening right here. Now, there's two labels that are given, the Pharisee and the tax collector. That society was rich in labels, and they liked to segment people and separate people, and one was better than the other, and so they had all kinds of designations in the temple area. So there was the place that the Jews could go to, and there was a place that the Gentiles could go to, and they had to be separate. And there was a place where the men could go to, and there was a place where the women could go to, and they had to be separate. There were those that were clean who could come in and those who were unclean that needed to stay far away. There was the place the priests could go and they could get pretty close. They could get like right up onto the steps of the temple or even go into part of it. The non priests, absolutely no way. You could not go. And so you have in this society real pecking order. There is really this idea that there's those that are in, those that are closer, those that are farther away. Don't get messed up because we'll put you in your place if you try to go in a place you should not go. That was very, very clear in the temple. And so when we're introduced to these two people that are coming What we realized right away is that you've got two people out of way different classifications. Now, they're coming up uh, one of two times. We don't know which time it was, but dawn and at 3 p.m. every day, atonement offerings were made right in front of the temple, in the courtyard right in front of the temple. Uh, One of the priests or the high priest would get up, and he would offer an atonement sacrifice, and it, it wasn't killing an animal every day. It was uh, incense that was burned, and there was music, and there were symbols that were banged together, and it was a big production. And the idea was uh, coming up during this time was a time when the high priest or the priest would offer an atonement prayer and this atonement offering for the people of Israel and any person that was there that felt sort of like, you know, if you feel like you need to get right with God, this is a great time to show up because we're going to do this thing. So these guys are coming up during one of those times. We don't know which one, but it's one of those two times. And this is the way the audience would have heard it. Billy Graham and Osama bin Laden came up to the temple one day, came to church together one day. That is how radical they would hear this. So let's talk about the Billy Graham character. Uh, 18.11 says, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. So let me tell you about the Pharisees, and some of you know about these guys. The Pharisees were the most religious people in Israel. They were the law keepers. They took great pride in the fact that they followed God's law. And before we jump to what church people know, which they're usually the bad guys, uh, following the law is not a bad thing. And most of them didn't, as little kids, sort of think, oh, good, I want to be the hypocrite and I want to be the butt of all of Jesus' attacks. That's what I dream of when I grow up. That's not what they thought. They really did believe they were doing God's work. They really did believe that they were helping the nation of Israel stay in God's presence and in his favor. They believed they had a job to keep the nation pure and holy, and they led the way with their actions. They worked hard, very hard, to be righteous. And that's not a bad thing if it's done in the right way. So here is the Pharisee. They kept the whole law. Now, just so you know how the law worked. How many commandments came down from Mount Sinai? Ten. After the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament actually filled in the Ten Commandments by putting a whole bunch of laws around it to try and explain how the Ten Commandments were, were to be done. And the number that they came up with in the Old Testament was 613. So, you know, you're sort of like, well, I think I can take a shot at the ten. At least maybe I can know the ten. But then 613, oh my gosh, and a lot of them were like ways of you sacrifice or things you have to do or not do, and they were kind of, you know, a little petty maybe, but they were all things to sort of keep the Ten Commandments really clear. Here's how you keep them. Now, the Jews over the years, after a while they said 613 is not enough. We need more rules and more laws to explain how those 613 work. So they wrote these books, Uh, And it was called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was 12 huge volumes that had thousands of laws explaining how the 613 laws could make you do the Ten Commandments. So you start to get this perception, and it would be right, of there were a lot of rules, a lot of do's and don'ts. And the Pharisees were the group that said, we're going to keep them. Absolutely. Not just the 10, not just the 613, We're focusing on the Mishnah. We are the best of the best. That is what this group is. So we get this idea that this Pharisee comes up, and we we start to sort of get this feeling of, hmm, I wonder if Jesus likes this guy or not. We start to get this idea that maybe Jesus doesn't like him. So the first thing we know is he stands up and he's praying out loud, which actually in that culture, if you prayed really loudly, like, let me just ask you this. If you were walking down Main Street in Huntington Beach by the pier and somebody was standing out there praying really loudly, out loud, what would you think about them? What would you think? You'd go up and say, wow, I admire your spirituality. <laughs> You'd probably say, you are rude. And you know what? That's exactly what they thought back in that day. This was rude, what he was doing. For him to stand up and to sort of proclaim so that it would interrupt other people, That was not how it was done. So this wasn't like, well, everybody was doing it. No, this was a a weird thing. So people would all be like, he was praying out loud like that? He was kind of rude. He stood by himself, and here's the reason he stood by himself, because they had a lot of rules about being clean and unclean, being contaminated or uncontaminated. If you defiled yourself, you had to go back out of the temple. And he didn't want to do that. And one of the ways you could defile yourself would be by, like, bumping into who? The tax collector. You bump into the tax collector by accident? Bummer for you. you got to go out. You're unclean. So he made sure he was not going to be contaminated by anybody in the temple. He stands to his side. And here's the really fun thing, and here's the illustration that we'll see. Are you guys, like, into this enough that I could try this illustration? You know, I don't believe you. I don't know. I don't know. I tried it. I tried it with our group. Uh, I tried it with the band, and it went over. I said, "Okay, now you guys are gonna have to laugh because nobody else." All right. So, okay, we'll try it. Okay, Saturday Night Live. How many of you watch Saturday Night Live? All right, this is really gonna be a problem then because you guys don't watch that show. Okay, well, Saturday Night Live. There is a character called Penelope, and Penelope is somebody that one-ups everybody. So whenever she's in a situation, whatever anybody says, she's going to one-up that person. And this guy is the ancient Saturday Night Live Penelope. That's who this guy is. So, for instance, it comes to fasting. And the rule of the day was you fast once a year on Yom Kippur. It was the holy day of the Jewish calendar. On that day, everybody fasts. Now, The Pharisees, who took that much further, said, we're not going to just fast on that day, because we're extra spiritual. So we're going to fast on 12 more days during the calendar. So there were days that surrounded the three biggest celebrations, and they would fast for two days before and two days after, and they sort of set themselves apart. We're a little bit better than everybody else, and we keep the law a little tighter. Well, do you notice how often this guy fasts? After they say, we would fast 13 days a year, he would say, well, I don't want to say anything, but I fast 104 days a year. (laughs) I fast all the time. That's why I'm so thin, and everybody knows it. Because I fast in front of everyone. I come in on market days, and everybody can see that I'm hungry, but it's okay." All right, so you guys love that. We're going to try it one more time. Tithing. Tithing was another thing, and everyone was expected to tithe and to give. And the rule of the day was you tithe on everything that you grow. If you grow crops, which was an agricultural society, you tithe on those crops. Well, the Pharisees took it a step uh, further. They said, we're also going to tithe on everything that we eat, so we're going to take it one step better. Do you notice what this guy says? Well, I tithe. I tithe on everything, yes, I tithe on what I grow, and what I eat, and what I sell, and what I buy, and I tithe on what I give, and what's given back to me, what can I say, I'm a tither, right, so this guy is the Penelope, he is the Penelope, that's it, we're not doing that again, he's the Penelope, and it's really interesting, if you listen to his prayer, just count how many eyes are in the prayer right just count how many times he refers to himself because it sounds like it's a prayer of thanksgiving to God about how God, how great God is it's not really right who is he praising in his prayer himself oh God not how great thou art how great I am You are so lucky to have me. Oh my gosh, 104 fasting days a year. I tithe on every single thing. You're just lucky to have me. And that really is the attitude that this guy carries. Okay, now let's compare him with the other character. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, uh, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, Tax collector was the scumbucket of the society. And in fact, if if you want to try to think of the lowest of the low in our society, you know, whether it be like a child abuser or you know, some kind of traitor or something like this, this is what came into people's mind. Tax collectors were Jewish people, Jewish men, but they were hired by Rome to tax their own people. A hostile government hired them. And the rule was, is as long as they got the taxes for Rome, they could attach to those taxes any increase that they wanted, any kind of additional tax for personal gain. And this is a very poor society. So people looked at those tax collectors and said, one, they are traitors to Rome. Two, they are robbing us blind, and there is nothing we can do about it. We can't go to Rome and say, this is unfair because Rome doesn't care. In fact, they'd say, you give to the tax collector whatever they want. So these were notorious people. These people were hated. They were very wealthy, but they were very separated. People did not like the tax collectors. So this is the guy that comes up. Now, he separates himself, too. But do you think he's separating himself because he doesn't want to get contaminated? What do you think? He separates himself because he thinks he might contaminate others. He feels so unworthy that it says he stands off to a distance. And again, if you saw sort of the makeup of how the temple courts worked and so forth, you get this idea that he is way on the fringe, barely can even bring himself to come close to the altar because he probably thinks a lightning bolt is going to vaporize me. I so much should not be here. God, you know, if God could see one-tenth of what I've done, I would just be dust. That's his attitude. That's the reason that he won't even look up. It says he beats his breast, which in that culture was an expression of extreme anguish where people would actually, you know, beat their breast as they, as they confess something or as they were grieving over something. But here's what's so interesting. Women beat their breasts... Men always held their dignity in public. So to have this guy actually beating his breast is a sign. He's in extreme anguish. And finally he says, have mercy on me. Now the word for mercy is literally the word for atonement. And remember what was happening twice a day up at the temple. They were making atonement. And so what he's done is he's come up and he's seen the priests make atonement for the nation of Israel, but he looks at that and he goes, it's not the nation of Israel that needs it. I need it. I need atonement. I need forgiveness. I need someone to pay for what I've done because this is so bad what I've done. I am desperate. I cannot fix this myself. I cannot earn my way back into it. I am totally on the mercy of God. If God doesn't do something to help me, I am done for. I know that I cannot make it. I am at the end of my rope. That's this guy's attitude. I am at the end of my rope. Do you know where God lives? Do you know what his address is? It's at the end of your rope. That's where God lives. And that's what Jesus now is going to teach. He goes on to say these words. Uh, Verse 14. Here is his scandalous point at the end. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, I tell you that this Adolf Hitler, rather than the pastor that always made himself the hero of every sermon illustration, I tell you that this man, this Adolf Hitler, not Mother Teresa, this man went home justified before God. For all those who will exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that is a principle that Luke gives several times in his gospel. He tells a story, or Jesus tells a story, and he throws in either that Jesus says it or he writes it as a summary statement. It is a theme that runs through Luke's whole gospel. Those who exalt themselves will be put down, those who humble themselves will be lifted up. Those who make themselves into something, or believe they're something, or act like they're something, they're gonna be humbled. Those who come in with humility, understanding that they're dependent, understanding that they need God's grace, God is going to come in and swoop them up and he's going to lift them up. That is a principle that is soaked throughout Luke's gospel. Jesus taught it over and over. It was so different than what people thought. And that's the reason it's emphasized over and over and over again. Here's the most amazing thing. Do you know who gets grace? People who need it. People who know they need it. Do you know who doesn't get grace? People who don't think they need it. Now that sounds simple, but it is a staggering thought. So who gets God's favor? The people that get God's favor are the ones who believe they're unworthy of it. They believe there's no way they could get it on their own. They believe that they've messed up and that they're totally in God's hands, totally in God's mercy. And Jesus says, God is so quick to lift those people up, to give them grace. But here's the person who's in trouble. The person through their good works, through their comparison with others, through their attitude that, you know what? I just work super hard at that which is not a bad thing to work hard at it. But when they finally say, I'm not sure that I need God's grace. If I can just get his justice, I'll be okay. God says, oh no, bad call. Really wrong attitude. You don't know what you're saying. There's two principles that come out of here that I want uh, us to sort of dig into as we wrap this thing up. There's two principles that are super important. The first principle is this. Comparison is the enemy of grace. Comparison is the enemy of grace. There's two ways we compare. We compare ourselves with God sometimes, and this was the initial sin in the Garden of Eden. What did Adam and Eve, why did they eat the fruit? Satan said that something would happen if they ate the fruit. There was a temptation there. Do you remember what it was? They were going to be like God. And God said, oh. Bad call. You can't be like me. What are you thinking? You can't be like me. Don't compare yourself with me. Don't think you can earn your way to me. If you want to get justice, if you want to play face to face with me, let me just make it super clear what you're saying. You're saying you're going to be perfect. You're going to say no slip of the tongue. You're going to say no bad thought. You're going to say, you know, no selfish action. You're not going to mess up in any way at any time for any reason because if you mess up even once, you do not match up to me and you're in huge trouble. So God says, don't compare yourself with me. That is never how you can win. Don't ever think you can earn your way to please me because you can't. You cannot earn it. And so that first thing, and we just, you know, for those of us that just are like, I don't want to take anything I don't earn, That is so dangerous in God's kingdom because you cannot earn God's love. It is freely given. It is a gift. We also tend to compare ourselves horizontally, right? We compare ourselves to other people. And we all do this. And I'm not super bad at the comparison with God thing, and maybe it's just because I knew I was so messed up when I became a Christian, and I'm reminded of it like pretty much on an hourly basis, that I'm never like, oh, God, just you know, give me what I deserve. I know that that's a real dead-end prayer for me. So that's not my problem. But I do have a problem with comparing myself with others. I have a problem of being envious of others or jealous. I can even be condescending if I feel like I've got the upper hand and I'm a little better than. And you know, I do it in, in you know, pastor speak, and nobody would ever guess it because I am a master at hiding it. But I know in my heart that comparison with others is an issue for me. I want others to think that I'm pretty great. That's what I want. That's why I had such a hard time doing that imitation of Penelope in front of you. (laughs) I want that. And you know what is super interesting about that is Jesus actually identifies people that are very focused on what other people think. Sort of this comparison thing, either to win them over or to beat them because that's what we do. We want to win people over, or we want to beat them. And we compare ourselves. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, turn there real quick. All right, Bible drill. Matthew 6, Matthew 6, Matthew 6. Okay, you can get there. Matthew 6 Jesus talks about a guy in Matthew 6, or people in Matthew 6 that have three problems, and this is going to be lo- a little bit uh, familiar to you based on what we just read about this Pharisee. So in 6.2 he says, When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, it's as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So let me ask you this question. Is it wrong to give? No. Is it important to give? Is that part of loving God? Absolutely. It is one of the past. You don't want to look at this and say, well, I better not give. Because that's not the conclusion. But what can be a great benefit to your relationship with God can also be a huge stumbling block. And you know what it's based on? Your motive. And if you're doing it to impress someone else, to beat someone else, to make yourself feel like you're earning your way to God in some way, Jesus actually says it gets in your way. It actually hurts you. It would be better if you didn't do it with that attitude. That's what he says. He goes on to say, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray. Verse 5 is where this is, 6-5. To pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Is it bad to pray? No. Is praying one of the ways we connect with God? Is it important to spiritual growth? Would God say, I want everyone to pray? Absolutely. So what is Jesus saying here? If you pray with the wrong motive, it would be better that you didn't do it at all. If you're praying to impress someone, if you're praying thinking this is going to make God love me just a little bit more, I'm going to be a little more spiritual than somebody else if I do this praying thing, he says, man, you're crossing a terrible line. Don't go there. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their face to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it won't be obvious to others that you are fasting. But only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting good or bad? It's a good thing. And a lot of you, I know, don't fast because that's not something that we practice as much. Fasting is one of the greatest ways to connect with God. When you stop eating or stop doing something for a while, it puts you in a position of dependence. And there are major positive things that come from fasting. But can you fast for the wrong reason? Absolutely. And when you do that, you're in trouble. When you do that, it doesn't just not help you. It actually hurts you. It hinders you. And that's the point that's being made here. And that Pharisee at the temple made all three of these mistakes. He gave for the wrong reason. He prayed for the wrong reason. He fasted for the wrong reason. And Jesus said, and he did not go home justified. He, did not, he was not considered righteous by God. In fact, he was pushing God away with these godly spiritual activities. They were actually pushing God away. We must not compare ourselves to other. If you find yourself starting to measure yourself by somebody else, trying to impress someone else with the way that you're acting, you are on such thin ice. It always gets you wrong. Always. Don't compare. Don't compare. That's what the Pharisee did. It was his downfall. It does not matter what other people think. It matters what God thinks. Do these things in secret is what it says. Now, that doesn't mean it's like, God, nobody can know that I gave money to the church. Like, I better not put that there because somebody might accidentally see me putting my check in the offering box. No, that's not the point. The point is with humility, with an audience of one. It's for God. It's not for anybody else. Okay, second thing, and this is what we're going to close on, and we have a really cool activity that we're going to do here as we close confession is the friend of grace. Confession is the friend of grace. And of course, that's what the tax collector does. He's not pure. And he doesn't all of a sudden say, I'm cleaning up my act, God. I'm going to be like that Pharisee. Just give me sort of beforehand credit here, okay? Let me in and you'll be so happy that you did. That's not what he says. He just says, I need mercy. I'm dependent on you. And that is the language of love for God. He loves it when he hears us say that. I just need you. I'm just dependent upon you. So we read in 1 John 1, 9. You're not going to have time to turn there because we've got to wrap up here. But it says, uh, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And just so that we're really clear, does that mean any sin you don't confess you're in trouble for? Is that what that means? It does not mean that. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble because we sin in ways that we don't even know. The point there is we can release anything and immediately feel that connection back with God. Immediately feel that our relationship is restored. In God's mind, it was never lost. For us, we can confess anything. And the Bible says as far as the east is from the west, your sins are removed couldn't get further away. He doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. You know why? Because if you keep on going north, 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 north and you hit the north pole and you keep going, what direction are you going to go? South. You have no options. If you go south, 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 hit the south pole, you are going to go If you go east, east, forever and ever and ever and you keep going east, what direction are you going? East. You can you won't ever start going west. That's the reason it says east from west cuz it is eternal. They are eternally separated from you. That's the point there. I was uh, reading a biography recently, and it's a guy who moved to India, and he was escaping the law, and he, he thought he'd never see his family again, and he had totally messed up his life. He had done terrible things, and he was running away. And he was taken by a friend to this little village, and it was remote, And the first night that he got there, uh, the family gave him the best bed in the house. And as he was about to go to sleep, they said, it must be so hard for you not to be with your family. We don't want you to go to sleep by yourself. So we're going to come and we're going to surround you while you fall asleep, which made him feel really uncomfortable. (laughs) If you can imagine that, these people you've never met, and they're sitting around you as you're falling asleep. And so he started to fall asleep. And uh, right as he was dozing off, the, the father of the family, an old farmer with rugged hands, put his hand on his shoulder. And immediately flooding into his mind were two very different, very distinct thoughts. The first thought he had is, oh my gosh, I have messed my life up so much. All of a sudden, it flooded into his head because he had been trying to push it down and not think about it and justify it, and he was mainly trying to get away from the law. And all of a sudden, he thought, how many people have I hurt? How messed up have I been? How selfish have I been? How many bad decisions have landed me in this place? And he said, for some reason, it was just crystal clear. This man who I didn't even barely know, this rugged hand goes on, to my shoulder, and all of a sudden, it is so clear to me, man, am I screwed up. And he said, but immediately, a second thought came into his mind. Wow, am I loved. Here is this family that doesn't really even know me, and here they are surrounding my bed so that I don't go to sleep alone. And here's this old farmer who just in acceptance, reaches out his hand and puts it on my shoulder just so that I know that he's here, that he's got my back, that it's going to be okay. As long as you're with me, you're okay. It was a remarkable thing. You know, there's a story called The, Parab- uh, the Prodigal Son and about a son that runs away and does all kinds of crummy things, and then finally he realizes he's made a mess of his life, and he comes back, And it says that his father sees him and runs down the road and throws his arms around him. And you have the same dynamic. This son recognizes as the rough hands of his father come around him. Man, have I messed up? Have I hurt other people by myself? How much damage have I done through what I've done? But here's dad reaching around, and that rough hand tells me I am loved. I am forgiven. We're going to ask you right now to write on the card that you have. You've been given a card and a pencil. And listen, the reason we do these exercises is because there is something powerful about actually doing something when you're finishing up. There's nothing magic about it. It's just you're actually putting something into practice. Here's what I want you to do. Band's going to play. And uh, as they do that, I want you to confess something. I want you to write something down on this sheet. It could be a sin that you're aware of and maybe through my talk here it just keeps bubbling into your mind. I know exactly what to write down. You're not turning these in, by the way, so don't worry about that. You're not putting your name on them. It could be just an overall disposition, just confessing, I need God. I try to do it too much on my own. I try to be too independent. I don't live as if I'm depending on God and I just confess that right now. But here's what I want to ask you to do. Once you write it down, Come down here. We've got the cross down here and we have some nails and we have some uh, hammers and just nail your confession to the cross because what God says is as far as the east is from the west, your sin is separated. If you have felt any kind of glitch in our relationship, any distance at all, that is gone. You are in my arms and you know what's going to happen as you come down and nail this to the cross, is the rough hand of a carpenter is going to put his hand on your shoulder, and you're going to be so aware of how you fall short. But the second thought you're going to have is, but I'm loved, and I'm accepted, and I'm forgiven, and in his mind, it's okay. I've got your back. And we need to know that. So when you're ready and when you've written this, come on down. Nail these to the cross. We're going to spend some time just worshiping to end. And then I'll come and dismiss us.